she was talking about how she felt bad and just kept saying you know every other paragraph started off saying it wasn't you and that kind of made me feel better too because she explained that it was all about her life the choices she was making that affected me and nothing to do with she didn't want me she hated me or she just rejected me it was just she was going through some some rough shit who am i 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 this is who am i really a podcast about adoptees that have located and connected with their biological family members. I'm Damon Davis, and you're about to hear Larry's story. He called me from Grand Rapids, Michigan. Larry talks about his life as a transracial adoptee in a predominantly white community where many white parents adopted black children. In a desperate search for role models, he latched on to some undesirable stereotypes of what a black man should be, including stories he heard about his birth father. After a near-death experience in the streets, Larry located his birth mother, who eventually wrote the letter he needed to read to release the pressure he was under. This is Larry's journey. Larry was born in the 1970s in New Jersey. Then he was transferred to Michigan, where he was adopted at two weeks old. In the area of Grand Rapids, Michigan, where Larry grew up, there were a lot of families formed through interracial adoptions, where white parents adopted black children. When Larry was brought into their home, his parents were already fostering three Native American children whose home had burned down. In their family, Larry also had one white adopted brother and one black adopted sister, and their family fostered several other children over the years. There was quite a bit of racial mixing in their household. In his high school, which was predominantly white. There were about 10 black kids who were adopted by white families. And we all stayed kind of cool. Half of us went crazy, half of us, you know, made it. Like my parents used to live in Byron Center, which is outside Grand Rapids. It's a really, really white area. And the neighbors hated them and got mad at my parents for having black kids and stuff like that. And so they moved to Grand Rapids in the inner city to be able to be around black people and get a better taste of what life is like with black and white people. That's really fascinating. You grew up, it sounds like, in a predominantly white community, but in that community was a pocket of parents who yep. had adopted black children. Yep. It's pretty cool. We, Like I said, we we all did our own thing. We, we, we were all cool because we knew we were like a, a different breed, but we never talked about it because we could never all put our finger on it. We just knew we had white parents and that we were different. And some of us try to be black, what they call black, I guess. Some try to be fit in with black, some try to fit in with white. And as it got older, you could tell who did what. Sometimes as you got older, you could tell who it worked for and who it didn't work for. And most of the times, it did not work trying to be something other than you were. What was your experience? Did you find yourself identifying as black or trying to identify as white? What, were you confused? Tell me a little bit about your own position. Actually, can I tell you about the book I wrote? Of course. Okay, so the title of my book is called White, Confused, Black, and Christian, The Autobiography of Larry Ife. I'm saying that because you just mentioned all three of those words. You mentioned black and white and confused. So the first years of my life, I call my white life. That's growing up in high school. I wore polo shirts, and I made sure I used the word like uh, before every sentence. 
I wanted to dress as white as possible. I wanted to sound as white as possible. Uh, the black kids that, that went to my high school, the couple that went there, I, I didn't really talk to them much. I knew nothing about black people, really, ex- except for what I saw on TV. And I was content with that because I just, I, you know, I grew up around the time when, you know, Eazy-E came out, you know, fuck the police and all that stuff like that. And it's just gangster rap. And, and, and I thought that that's what black men were like. I thought they were gangsters, drug dealers. You know, always wore sweatsuits and sneakers. I'm like, you know, why are they always wearing sneakers? Why can't they wear, you know, I wore dock sides. You know, why can't they wear dock sides or loafers or just why they have to do the wild stuff? And I didn't, <clears throat> so I didn't really know about black people till I, I got out of high school. So that's my white life. But I didn't really fit in there. And that's what led to my, what I call my confused life. Because, like, I didn't want to be white. I couldn't be white. I didn't fit in with white. And when I did, the more I tried to fit in with white, they rejected me more. And that left to my confused life. And at that point, I said, I'm not white. Let me try this black thing. And so I started getting into selling drugs and, you know, gunplay. And I had, um, I didn't care about going to jail. I went to jail, like I said, probably 15, maybe 20 times. Just like I said, for little stuff like threatening somebody or stolen cars or child support. But I didn't care because I was like, this is part of being a black man. And especially when I had to go to prison for, I, I caught a gun case. When I had to go to prison for that, I was actually excited because I'm like, okay, I'm a black man now. I got my, you know, I got, I got my car stamped. And all that led to, you know, a bunch of chaos. During that time, I had multiple kids by different women. And it didn't, it was just a crazy lifestyle. I got hooked on cocaine and porn addiction and cocaine addiction and strippers and a bunch of wildness, but I didn't really care during that stage. I thought I was just being black. I could run the streets with the best of them. And I was happy. And then my, my last, that's my black stage. I call it my black life. And that circled me back to my Christian life. I grew up in a Christian church, Christian home. We went to church every Sunday twice. Then we went to church on Wednesdays for cadets. And so I went to Christian high schools, Christian schools. The last stage of my life that I'm in now currently, is I call it my Christian life because I got back into the Bible. Not church, I got back into the Bible. And that's what got me out of the black and white thing. I didn't care. Like right now, I don't really care too much about black and white. I'll stand up for any black cause or any white cause or whatever because I, I'm, I view myself as being a spiritual being first, and then it kind of beautifies my differences, our differences in skin colors and cultures and everything else. But my spiritual being is what kind of got me to not even care about black and white at this stage of the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is fascinating to hear. I grew up in the same era that you did in a different way. You know, my community in Columbia, Maryland was intentionally racially and socioeconomically mixed. And so we definitely had our sets of sort of interesting integrations. But yours sounds like it was so skewed in the direction of the full white community with a smattering of black people around that it's interesting to hear as you tell your story that it doesn't sound like there were any or many role models of what a black male should be. And therefore, NWA and Eazy-E and all of these other cats came out really hardcore and they and they were so sort of famous for all of the things that they were doing and, and, and the things they did came from their own sort of experience in America that you identified with that because that was all you had to identify with Larry explained that the area of Grand Rapids that his family lived in had experienced some gentrification, changing older, poorer urban neighborhoods by improving housing, attracting new businesses, and frequently 
displacing the prior inhabitants of the area. What initially started out to be a predominantly black neighborhood began to turn over and mix into a black and white neighborhood. But even so, there were no black role models around for the young black children in these interracially adoptive families. The families didn't know how to speak on the black experience for their children because they didn't understand it themselves. Their main focus was adopting out of love. Larry said the interracial nature of the families and their place in their respective communities was very confusing for him. He gave an example of one young man whose white parents took the time to explain black history and culture to him, and he went on to identify as black, building a black family and living in a mostly black community. But not everyone was able to find their identity in the same way. We had a just a, a big mix and we never, like I said, I never looked at race when I was younger. I never looked at skin color. I just knew that it, you know, like I say, if it's white, it's right. That's all I knew growing up. And so you feel like an alien kind of, you just don't, you feel like a, a, a lion in the sheep's clothes, you know, it's just like, let me free. You just want to break free, but you didn't know how or what that looked like. That's really interesting. And, and one of the things that I've sometimes thought about with regard to adoption is the idea that in some instances, there's a mixed family and when you're adopted in a mixed family, sometimes the premise is if everybody's different, then nobody's different. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. However, I feel like sometimes that can also be the reverse, that nobody's the same and they're every, therefore everybody feels really different, right? Like if you're an adoptee like myself, a black man in a black family, you you feel some kind of connectivity to your family, right? But in an instance like yours where there are, you know, black boys and white girls and first American folks and white parents, like everybody is so different. It doesn't seem like there would be much connectivity between you besides the fact that you are chosen to be family together. Is that roughly correct? That's yeah, man. Yeah, you're good. <laughs> That's literally how it was. I mean, I have, I have older sisters who are like, man, we remember, we had so much fun with you growing up, and I'm like, I don't remember any of that. And they're like, we're really close, and I'm like, nah, I don't, I don't. They're a little bit older than me, but at the same time, like I said, we never. Everybody's in their own little worlds. My black sister, she's about three years older than me. She doesn't want to find her parents. She's content to just be, do what she does in life. And her and I used to tell people we're the same dad or different moms or whatever it was, something like that. When we'd be around black people, because they'd be like, you guys kind of look alike, but you don't. And we'd be like, yeah, we got the same dad. You know, we really say. Didn't. Yeah, no, I have no idea where my mom and dad is. Um, and like I said, when I met mine, then it got crazier. Wait, so so you had, actually, you had black parents? Yes. My mom was light-skinned. My father was fairly dark-skinned, and I'm medium brown, so I'm in the middle between them. So we really looked like we could have been family. And to top it off, you know, we're all Libras. My my mom's birthday is October 8th. My dad's birthday was October 17th, and mine was 14th in the middle. Oh God! So, like we just had this crazy, you know, for me, fortuitous setup of looking like we could have been family for whatever you think of astrological signs, whether you believe in them or not. You know, the fact that we have birthdays right in the same calendar month next to each other. Um, crazy. Yeah, it was just really a very different experience from the one that you're describing. And and it was, I was very lucky for that, I think. So this family, so if you're black, adopted into a black family, you automatically don't have any 
cultural issues or anything or any identity issues with culture, do you? You know, it's funny because it's not just about the family group you grow up in. As you've indicated, the community you grow up in is also an influence on how you see yourself, right? So if you, a young black man, step out of your house and every single person in the community basically is white, except for a couple of other black kids who happen to also be adopted, I can see how it would call into question your own identity. Like my dad was from Kansas City, Kansas. My mom was from Kansas City, Missouri, and they both grew up in predominantly black neighborhoods. And, you know, they came to Maryland seeking sort of a better financial life and opportunity. And and all of those things were present. But they also chose to join a racially integrated community. And what came with that was, in fact, racial integration. And so it brings with it, you know, certain things that they probably never could have calculated And, you know, quite frankly, things that I'm grateful for because I grew up with a lens on race that wasn't necessarily tinted in a negative way. And I was fortunate to have made a selection of a historically black university. And so I got a very good experience in the black community through my college years. And so now, you know, I'm able to traverse multiple communities very easily because I've had a diverse set of experiences, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it it, it does because that's, that's exactly how it is. Even though our situations were, were flip-flop, I can be around, you know, pretty much anybody. I'm cool with everybody. And, and but like I said, for me, it, it wound up being not so much, okay, I finally figured out what it means to be, in my own skin, it, it was the spiritual side for me that got me over the color of stuff. When Larry spoke of his adopted family, he admitted he didn't have a bond with his parents growing up. He said they're closer today, but the bond wasn't tight in his youth. Larry loved them for caring for him, and he knew they were his mother and father. But it felt like while they were his parents, he could also feel that they were not his parents. It wasn't a nurturing type love. Even though they were good parents... It was never like, okay, I love you, mom, and, you know, you know, good night hugs and all that. Even though they probably did hug me at nighttime, I never felt that connection. I never had a close connection with them. It was just, they're my parents. I love them. They didn't abuse me. Got, you know, taken care of, but I there was just a, com- a complete disconnect, probably because of the time period I grew up in, too, but it's a complete disconnect as to, my mom, my dad and I don't hug to this day. We hugged one time, I think. We don't really hug her, but hey, dad, I love you, man. It's just like, uh, hey, dad, you know, that's my dad. If anybody messed with him, I would, you know, I would destroy a small village. It's my mess with my mom or dad. But on the flip side, it's not like I, I have this strong love and this bond that, you know, a mom and a child have. I just, I don't, I don't get why I don't have it, but it, it just never, when I grew up, it was just never there. Yeah. What I'm hearing, it feels like to me, what you have is a love for them for what they've done for you. That really is more of an appreciation. Yeah. Yeah. Sense. Yeah. So I, it, it was, they, they said now as we got older, we, we talked about this and they said they did their best. Preceding his years of crime, before he rediscovered the Bible, Larry had enlisted in the United States Marine Corps for two years. Coming from his home in a Dutch, white, Christian, nonviolent community, a home where his parents never cursed, the Marines were a confusing, eye-opening experience. 
Larry had gotten wind of his birth father's violent streak, and he began to identify with that persona. The aggressive, harsh environment of boot camp was a whole new world of profanity and fighting, and his first exposure to men of color outside of Grand Rapids. When Larry got out of the Marines, he was a different man than he was when he went in. I had a, I had a son. I found out a son. And so I lived with her, and that's when I started getting into, you know, guns. And I had a fascination with violence. And part was because I, I started asking questions about my biological dad, and I guess he's a big, big guy. I'm only like 5'10", 200 pounds. I'm solid. But he was like, you know, 6'3", 6'4". He used to get in fights with the police, and he's a kind of a violent dude, I guess. And so I clashed on to trying to be like him and have my own black experience. So I became the person that, you know, somebody in the family, I remember my little nephew said somebody's messed with him one time in Detroit. So I rolled up on the scene and I had the, um, what was an AK-47? I think AR-15. And I came up on the scene just broad daylight, like, you know, okay, I'm not here for games. All y'all, you know, just go home, leave alone, it's done. I was that dude. I was the dude that would walk in the house and have my sunglasses on or whatever. And I heard you mess with my niece. So this is what's going to happen. You know, you're going to pack your shit and get out of the house. Or we can go at it right now. Gunplay, fighting, what you want to do. And I started getting to that kind of mentality where I could just didn't care. And I was getting pretty ruthless. And so I had people that would call me to do those kind of jobs like that. A guy I used to buy my, my cocaine from. My nickname was Hitman. So he'd be, hey, hey, Hitman, got a job for you. So I would go do something to somebody. And at first I would get money, but then I started getting hooked on it. So now I'm getting high and doing you know, violent stuff to get my drugs. And I, I didn't, I didn't care. It was just, I didn't care because I was like my dad. I was black, didn't even care. <clears throat> and so it was actually kind of, they're fun, but they weren't fun because I would, I would, I would do something to somebody and I would, you know, get a couple thousand dollars and then I would just get high. I'd go to Vegas or, or, Go to casinos, go to, you know, Houston, I have people in Houston, go down there, I'd get high, uh, go to strip clubs. I'd be, you know, broke in about three or four days and didn't care. Okay, what's next? What are we doing next? And I liked it. I, 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 I actually uh, enjoyed it. And, and I, I, I don't know I say I enjoyed it, but it gave me what I needed. It gave me the complete flip flop of the white world. And that's all I was looking for in life was just chasing that black thing. And I had found it until I had a near-death experience while I got high one night. And at that point, I began to switch over and started my Christian life. But yeah, the other life was, it was a wild period. And, and, and like I said, selling crack and selling coke and getting into gunplay <clears throat> led to me get addicted to crack and cocaine. And like the pornography was all with it with the strippers and stuff. It was just a wild time. I didn't, didn't take care of my kids. But it was what I thought I wanted. Or it was at least I can say it was at least a stage that benefited me in the fact that in, I got to see. You know, you never appreciate being rich until you've been poor. Sometimes you don't appreciate the hot until you've been cold. Mm -hmm. It's one of those things for me, and yeah. it kind of helped me get a neutral scene on everything. Yeah, that sounds like a extremely wild time. Really crazy. Can you take me to the the near death experience that? was what it sounds like sobering for you what happened in that in that moment so i i would usually get high and then uh a typical thing was i would come i would go somewhere maybe do some work for somebody like at really work like a paint house or something like that i would get money get drugs get high and this situation i, I still know what's going on but in the situation i was high and 
the guy there had a gun, um, and he had some girl with him at the house, and her and I were kind of, she was kind of checking me out, kind of checking her out, and he was pissed, so he called a couple guys to come over and basically beat my ass, and I, I'm seeing everything, but I'm high, and uh, so I tell him, hey, I got to run next door right quick, and I, I was supposed to be painting, I got to check on my paint job, and this is because the two guys came over, and the one guy was like, hey, don't let him out the house. You know, I'm hearing all this. I'm like, oh, shit. So I get out the house. The guy says, okay, we'll come right back. I get out the house. I take off running, and now these guys are trying to find me, and it, I see I, I hid in some bushes. Long story short, I made a run uh, about five blocks away. I, I climbed up a tree in the back of a building, and I had to jump off while I was high, so I was going to take the wires, the street wires, across the street as high I was. And I got, I started going across the street, and my feet uh, got, fell off the, the, the bottom wire, so I'm hanging on the top wires about 40 feet up or whatever and I just let go and I smashed my wrist I smashed all the bones of both my wrists and my feet were broken and stuff like that and I got away I wanted to climb up a telephone pole with those big power cylinders at it because I figured they wouldn't shoot me if I was up there and I'm sitting there like oh god this is this is it I'm please save me I'm done I'm done I'm done and I stayed there until some police actually rolled by and then they had the fire department come get me down blah 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 and they said I could have died because all the things the power voltages and I did get some shocks a little bit. It's a little shocks from when I would try to unscrew certain shit to get down. But at that moment, I was like, okay, this is it. Because cause I was in bad shape. I had to have, you know, those Frankenstein boots on both my feet and stuff like that. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done chasing. I'm done getting high to escape stuff. I'm done. And, and God, you came at just the right time. They always say your timing is right. That's it. I'm done. And from that point on, I asked God to take my addiction away. I said, just take this addiction away from me. And he said, I could, but if I do, I can't use you to tell a story on how to get through addiction, how to get through, overcome something like crack or cocaine addiction, how to come through porn addiction, how to get through your violent stuff, how to overcome all these black, white things you're dealing with. So I can use you for that stuff, or I can just take it away right now and you can just, hey, enjoy life like a regular person and enjoy it. You live it how you live it. So from that point on, I did. I did still get high several times, but at that point in time, it was more like a lesson. It was like, okay, I got high. The next day, I would be able to kind of sit back and say, okay, what what led to this? And so now I help people with my books and stuff like that. The different books I have, and I talk to people openly, like, okay, this is what you got to pay attention for. You know, I've been there. I've, I see it. I see the big picture now, and I, I see the black white stuff. I see the the drug addiction stuff. I see. I see, I see things from a different lens now. I, I see it like I'm out, like out of body experience and I've been through it. And now I'm at a level where I can, it's, it's totally different for me now. I don't want to get high now because for me, it was just me trying to fill in certain blanks in my life. And then it's like I said, it, it, it sounds probably all mixed up, but it, it, if you don't get your shit straight early with this cultural stuff, the black, white stuff or the adoption stuff or find your identity in a culture the sooner you get there, the the better. I can't have somebody black helping me understand what being black is about. I need something different, and that's when I took that spiritual route. You know, so I'm, I'm married now. I haven't cheated my wife. I haven't been high. I'm happy. I'm, I'm I got a lot of plans that God has for me, it, and they cross all racial lines. I'm in a better place now. Yeah. Wow. Well, first, let me just say, one, what a crazy, unbelievable story of breaking all your bones and still climbing a telephone pole and, and end up, you know, coming down from that. That's unbelievable that you survived that. But two, how amazing that you were able to 
you know, sort of find God in those moments and have the message be sent to you. Listen, I need you to stay here so you can tell the story. That's really unbelievable. And I'm glad you're here to do that because it's not a lot of people that make it through the amount of stuff that you did and survive to tell any part of it, let alone survive to tell it and exit that life into positivity. And I think that that's a really powerful thing that, that you're working on right now. Cool. Thanks. Before those tumultuous years, Larry was in college. At about 21 years old, he decided somewhat randomly to write a letter to the adoption agency back in New Jersey that placed him. Coincidentally, the same day his letter arrived at the agency, a corresponding letter arrived at the agency from his sister. When they linked up, Larry found out a lot about his sister's journey. Hers was a sad existence. She knew both his birth mother and father until the man was killed when she was a kid. And then my mom had to come back from college to take care of this dog that she thought she had given up for adoption. Um, so they have a whole different relationship. And, and I just now, it's crazy, it's just about two months ago, my biological mom wrote me a letter and explained what she went through and that it wasn't me. The letter she wrote me, it was called, It Wasn't You. And she explained what she was going through as a young 16-year-old and then 17-year-old having two kids. And now I actually love her. Up, this, up until this point, I never really loved her either. I kept it shallow. But she wrote a serious letter about what she was going through. And I can relate because I've been through stupid shit. So I can relate that you have problems. You have to find a way to get through. She's, she's big time into the Bible as well. And so her and I have really connected over the past two months. Because when I met her, it was like, okay, this is cool. Okay, I'm done. She came to Michigan that one time. I'm like, okay, this is good. I got to see my black mom. But there was nothing there other than, okay, this is my, I have an actual black mom. You it didn't go. Box. Yeah, 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 yeah. You got yeah. to see your face. You got to say hi. Yeah. You know, like, All right, check. Found yep. her. Met her. Really interesting. So you didn't really have a connect. So she came to you in Michigan for your first meeting. Yeah, my parents My parents called her and had her come. And then uh, mm -hmm. they stayed with us for like a She stayed with us for like a week. We went to Mackinac Island and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And I, it caused kind of more confusion than it, than it, because I had a sister about my my adopted sister her and i were always just me and her and now it's me and her but uh oh i got a real life you know biological big sister that's a not a real big sister but it's it's really my big sister and so i felt like i kind of betrayed my adopted sister mm -hmm. and so i don't know how i would tell someone to do it i would tell them that there's definitely a certain mental space you have to be in when you do this thing uh this parent search I think you have to be completely 100% done with searching. Like I said, those things where they say, if you don't look for it, just let it come to you. It's got to be, I think it has to be one of those things from my view, like I said, because if you're looking for it and you're trying to find an identity and everything else, it's, it's going to keep you just spinning in life. But like I said, I, I'm just happy to see him. Oh, I got a black mom. Okay. And, and that, was, that was about it for me. So it was, my relationships were all shallow growing up. So mm -hmm. I didn't really, I didn't really care. Just got to see her. Larry said it was nice to see his birth mother's face because he has her same eyes, nose, and complexion. But when they met, he was just checking the box on meeting her. Even though he grew up without any mirroring in his adopted family, he just wasn't in a place to connect with his birth mother more deeply. When he wrote that letter to the adoption agency, he didn't actually expect to see her, but there she was. And then now that I see her, it's like at this point, 
I'm so I was so numb to what a mom actually is. She was like another lady to me. She's like a lady. I, I could, yeah. yeah, I couldn't say I love you. I couldn't say I respect you. It was cool to be the same eyes and nose, and but other than that, I was. It wasn't to put it this way. It was not a, a substantial life changing moment for me. Uh, Let me ask you then. You said you know you just kind of wrote the letter, but sitting down to write a letter to find out information is a very intentional thing. You don't just kind of do it by accident. It's not like you send an email and you accidentally reply yeah. all. You know what I'm saying? Like, when you <laughs> sit down, you have actually taken the time to find the agency, put pen to paper or whatever, and suggest that you are interested in finding more. But you say, you know, you weren't, like, super interested in actually meeting her. What were you looking for, do you think, then, in writing a letter if you kind of almost didn't care? It was more, I think, because like I said, I was, I had been, right before I started college, we had, we had got kicked out of our house for selling drugs and stuff like that. And so I was, didn't know where to go. And my friend suggested I go to college I used to play soccer. And so I got a soccer scholarship. So I'm in the dormitory now. And I think around that time, me and my mom and dad started, we didn't have email back then. We started, we started writing letters to each other and having phone calls about life. You know, like, what are you gonna do next? I'm like, I don't know. She in college. I don't know. I don't know what's going. I don't know what's next. And I think that she has said, that, I, if my memory serves me correctly, she made a comment about something to do with family. Well, did your parents go to college or something to that effect? I think that's what got the ball rolling. And I said, you know what? I really don't know. Um, and I probably had a, a dull moment where I was like, let me. I asked her probably, hey, give me a, give me all the information you have on her. And then I'll know. We had a brief conversation about that, I believe. And that's when she said, you had a biological sister and your dad was in the violence. And that's pretty much all they know. Your mom's side was from India. And so I, so I wrote a letter. This is Larry Ife. It's my birthday. I heard I had a sister. Just let her and my mom know that this is my name or something to that effect. It was real simple. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then they got, so they got it and then we met. That's incredible. Did I hear you say that your mom is East Indian? Yeah, so she's from her dad's from India. Uh, he came, he came over, and he met this black lady, and her his and his parents said, "If you marry her, we'll reject you." And so they rejected him because he he loved her, and so they got married. And that's my that's her parents. So gotcha. So your mom is mixed black and East Indian. Yeah, fascinating. What was it like to hear that piece of your cultural history? It was it was really, but for the wrong reasons for me. It was really good because I could say I was something, I had something in my genes that was not black because African American is a whole new culture to me that started up right after slavery because at first we were Africans and then they became African Americans, but it was nothing proud that I knew about being an African American. There was nothing. I think I wanted to go to black colleges, but you know, I love looking at them on TV, but I was like, oh man. But in my eyes, without that experience, and based on the experiences I was putting myself through, I saw nothing positive about being African American. So, anytime you can say, "Oh, I, I got you know Indian, or I'm part Cherokee, or whatever it is," that that kind of makes up in my eyes. It kind of makes a lot of black people feel like they're not just your everyday African American. There's something a little bit better, and there's something wrong with that. But I, that's a whole new conversation. Yep. Yeah, there's a. It's funny. There can be a bit of a a pride in having some additional piece of culture that you can identify with. But I think a lot of people are interested in that sort of additional culture. Like before the onset of 
commercialized DNA testing. You basically just looked at a person and said, like, that guy's white, that guy's black. And you you could only make certain assertions based on certain things that you knew were sort of common in a specific set of people. You might be able to say, she might have some Irish in her, right? Like there were things that you could kind of tell. But now I believe that DNA testing has enlightened a lot of people to the fact that we are not just these large buckets of people. You're not just black, just white, and just this other thing. There are lots of nuances to how you got to be the person that you are. It's your yeah. Indian father and his black wife and, you know, your mother and her black, you know, man that she conceived you with. And you know what I mean? It's just like there's this lineage that follows you that has this cultural mix to it that makes us all super unique. And I think that's really fascinating. Larry admitted meeting his birth mother was a check the box kind of moment for him years ago. But more recently... She's written him a letter explaining more of her situation. He had lived a life trying to find himself, becoming hardened by a lifestyle he chose to lead searching for his identity while trying to escape elements of his life. Then he rediscovered the Bible and turned his life around. I asked him what she said in her missive and how her words hit him. Man, I cried. I I couldn't even finish the letter. She was talking about how scared she was and that she had changed her mind. And But once she signed the paper for adoption, that was it. And she said that the nurse actually brought me back to her. She heard me crying down the hallway. She knew it was my cry, she said. And the nurse brought me back to her, laid me on her chest, and I stopped crying. When I read that part, I just I literally started shaking and crying. I had my wife. I asked my wife. I couldn't even finish reading. I, I, I couldn't. Just something about that just hit me. And I just, I cry, I was shaking, crying. Just had to lay down, I had to lay down, I had a headache. Just knowing that my mom, with that, I, I missed out on that connection. Or there's something there that I, I was craving from another human that I didn't have. I, I couldn't finish the letter, like I said. So my wife let me lay down for an hour. And I, then she started reading the letter to me some more. And when she was talking about how she felt bad and, just kept saying, you know, every other paragraph started off saying, it wasn't you. And that kind of made me feel better, too, because she explained that it was all about her life, the choices she was making that affected me. It had nothing to do with she didn't want me, she hated me, or she just rejected me. It was just, she was going through some, some rough shit and just made the rough, made decisions that, in the end, I believe God had a plan for. But she didn't know that. I didn't know that. If I'd have grown up in New Jersey, I'd have been dead by now. And about just different things, you know. I don't know where it would have been, different group homes or because she didn't really want kids. And she said this is just her because her dad was an abusive dad and just a bunch of personal stuff about her. So now she's a person to me. Now she's a person. Now I actually love her. Now it's like our hearts are connected. She felt my heartbeat. I felt hers now. Yeah, it was it was nice to hear that. It was it was really good to hear that. It's, it's a nice connection. Especially with me going through what I went through and being a horrible dad for my kids. I, I, I actually got things better with two of my kids once I had read a letter. I called one of my daughters and told her what my mom said and explained to her what, what I had gone through. And, and it kind of helped her and I break the ice because she viewed me as a total stranger. She's 27. She said, I'm glad you made this talk, Dad, because I view you as a stranger. You just, you're a stranger to me. And, and people always tell me I should say hi to you or, or hug you. And I don't, it's like hugging a stranger. 
And so I explained to her that wasn't about you. Like my mom told me and her and I are in a better place now. So that um, is amazing. You're telling me that your mom sends you this letter that one makes you feel somehow whole or it has reconciled bad feelings that you had. And then it led to you taking that even further back to your own kids. That's crazy. Yep. Yeah, because it was such a relief. And I knew, like I said, I know all me and my kids are they give me my respect because they know I'm a terror, but they 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 don't give me the dad respect. They they do they don't call me Larry, no shit like that, but they, they give me that a certain respect, but it's like where even my oldest son, he remembers the day I gave him one of my guns. I got him into guns of cocaine addiction. So I'm dad, but I'm I'm there's not nothing personal, personal really there. And so once my mom gave me that relief valve. She pulled a relief valve for me. I reached out to him as well, and I, I, I tried to pull his relief valve and let him know as best I could that it was had nothing to do with him. And, and my books, like I said, like I, my books explain, they go into a lot of detail about different aspects, too, that most people don't talk about. And I love it. It's, it's really, they're therapeutic for me, and they, they, they let people in my life know it wasn't you. And, and my daughter, my, my one daughter in Detroit, she broke down and was crying. She was like, you were never there for me. The other daughter I talked to, she said, you were never there for me. And I wish you were there for me and, and this and that and this and that. And she cried and broke down. And I was able to s- separate my emotions and say to her, listen, it was, had nothing to do with you, baby. And if you look back at it, you really would not have wanted me to have been there around you when you were starting to date boys. You know, I'd have murdered them. You know, I'd have, I was still out there doing stupid stuff. You'd have hated me. You think it's it's. You have to understand the plan for everything. Once you get to that point, you can deal with stuff on a non-emotional level. And that's the level that my mom got me to when I read the letter. I mean, I was emotional because I cried, but it got me to a relief where I didn't have to deal with the emotion, the emotional aspect of being adopted anymore. It was a real thing. It's not, oh, you're bad. You weren't there. I was there. You were bad. It was okay. We're humans. Bam. This is really what happened. I can live with that now. Mm-hmm. Wow. It sounds like you had pushed down everything so much, tried to cover it over with, you know, certain misguided attempts at trying to find your identity and stuff that this letter of explanation just really, like you said, released a pressure valve that just allowed you to open up everything. It's really, really fascinating to hear. May I ask you, what did you, you said, you know, your, your father, your biological father was a wild dude and you in some ways identified with that piece of him, but you've since changed direction and found guidance in the Bible and things like that. After her letter and she explained sort of who she was and what she was going through and you had a chance to sort of think things over, how did you think about your biological father in the aftermath? It's, it's different for me with a father because when I got into the Bible, God became my heavenly father. My, my, my spiritual father, my heavenly father. So at that point in time, I wasn't really interested in needing that head of the household, that leader, that role model, because I had a new role model. So my view on men and women is completely different. I found what I needed in a, in a mom with that letter she wrote me, and I found what I needed for my dad by getting close and actually personal with God as my heavenly father. So and she didn't really tell me much about him either because she they were just 16 and 17 years old. She knew about them. It's like a, a hot love affair. Um, doesn't know too much about him really either. She just said he's built like, he's built like Mike, that Mike Tyson guy. And he was violent. And, and, and she didn't really tell me a lot either. So a lot of stuff, I kind of took the ball and ran with it. And 
once I stopped getting the drugs and the violent stuff, I kind of shed what I what I was looking for in my father at the same time. So I never really had, I never really needed closure with him because all my thoughts about him were negative, negative, negative. And once my mom cleared the story that she was going through what she was going through, all I can do is assume that he was going through what he was going through because he can't write me a letter, obviously. So I have to give him a free pass as well. That's interesting because you're right. You have to almost assume some forgiveness yeah. from him for him, you know, give him some and assume that he would wish that things could be better. And that's sometimes the thing that people need to carry forward is to, in the absence of actual information, make the assumption, listen, if this person had their way and perhaps hadn't grown up the way that they had grown up that led them into this place of being, you know, unavailable for me, I have to assume that they would have been, you know, a better person. And, and you just got to got to forgive them for not being that because yep. you don't know what they went through. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's why I'm glad we had, I, I, I was able to see this story about you and, and, and be able to talk about this. And, and, and is, I, I like doing it. Like I said, it, it's, it's refreshing. I'm, 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 I'm not the only person that, that, that went, that was black and that's my whites and tried to be black and white. I'm not the only person and I want to talk about it. I'm not the only person that smoked crack and watched porno for three days straight. I, I, you got to talk about it. You got to talk about these things and, and, and you just got to talk about them. And that's why I like this, this format you got here, especially the adoption thing. Cause you got to talk about it. I, some of the guys I grew up with, they killed themselves. One guy killed himself. He was one black kid adopted by white people. He killed himself. A couple of the other guys made sure they married a black woman. So it's it's good to hear things like like what you're doing and stuff. So I'm I'm always game to to talk about it. So well, I appreciate it, Larry. I mean, this is you know, there's folks who want to bury their past and they don't want to talk about it, and they wish that they weren't the way that they were, and they they want to hide from what they once were and it's it's not really helpful because someone else coming down the path behind them is Oof. facing some of the same exact issues and to hear how you one got into that situation but two how you got out of it is incredibly valuable and for those stories not to be told is really kind of a tragedy for the person who needs to hear them so that they can too plan their escape so i'm really yeah. glad that you're here to tell the story i'm really glad that you're one to open up and, and share and i really appreciate you being here with me cool thanks for the invite man that's very nice yeah absolutely good to hear from you larry you take care man thanks for being here all right all the best <laughs> all right guys all right dude take care bye hey it's me larry grew up in a heterogeneous family where his adoption left him searching for himself and positive role models to connect with at first he took a low road through his early life filled with addiction and violence, but he survived those turbulent days to receive the message he needed to hear, that his journey was important to share with others. Thankfully, Larry took the time to reach out to find his biological sister, who connected him to his birth mother. It was admirable that she flew to Michigan to stay with Larry's family to get to know him, but it was more important that she took time to write out her story and her feelings to share with Larry, to remind him, it wasn't you. So many adopted people wonder what was wrong with them that led to their relinquishment. His birth mother told him very directly that it wasn't him, and that was what Larry needed to know to move forward in strength and positivity towards his own children. I'm Damon Davis, and I hope you found something in Larry's journey that inspired you. 
validates your feelings about wanting to search or motivates you to have the strength along your journey to learn. Who am I, really? If you would like to share your adoption journey and your attempt to connect with your biological family, please visit whoamireallypodcast.com slash share. You can follow the show at facebook.com slash really. If the show is meaningful to you, you can support me with a contribution to keep it going on patreon.com slash really. Please subscribe to Who Am I Really on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. It would mean so much to me if you took a moment to leave a five-star rating there. Those ratings can help others to find the podcast too. And you can check out the story of my adoption journey, Who Am I Really? An Adoptee Memoir on Amazon.com. I hope you'll add my story to your reading list.